Good morning, church. As our kids make their way to their class, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're returning this morning to the book of Ephesians together. As we enter these last few weeks and conclude our time of study here in this uh, book of God's Word, it's Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to pick up in just a moment in verse 22, and we'll go through verse 33. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. So this morning as we return uh, here in God's Word to the book of Ephesians, God's Word directs our attention to things that have become absolutely, not just controversial, but topics that are raged against by the broader culture, to quote from Psalm 2. We have come to a time in our own culture where there's nothing new under the sun, but we seek to cast off all authority and restraint, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, deciding for themselves what was right and what was wrong and going their own way. And with that casting off of authority, we've sought to live and express ourselves, our, our inward desires, which Jeremiah tells us are completely tainted with sin. But we seek to express those desires outward. And our culture has moved from saying it should be tolerated to it should be affirmed to it should be celebrated. And in the name of equality, we've eroded authority. Marriage has been viewed as oppressive and has been viewed as in need of redefinition. And the result of this is absolute chaos in our own lives and in the culture more broadly. And as I think on uh, this, I, I want to share with you something that was written by a writer back in 1992. And it is really the result of a culture that we're living in that is a culture of sexual chaos. So I know the passage before us is not specifically about Sexual morality, we have looked at that earlier in Ephesians, but it is about marriage, where the good gift of sexual intimacy should be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. And as we have eroded marriage, we've eroded the roles within a marriage, the biblical roles within a marriage, then the result has been chaos throughout our culture. And back in 1992, Wendell Berry wrote these words, according to his claims, Sexual liberation ought logically to have brought in a time of naturalness, ease, and candor between men and women. It has, on the contrary, filled the country with a sexual self-consciousness, uncertainty, and fear. Women, though they may dress as if the sexual millennium has arrived, they hurry along city streets and public corridors with eyes averted like hunted prey. Eye contact, once the very signature of our humanity, has become a danger. The meeting ground between men and women, which ought to be safeguarded by trust, has become a place of suspicion, competition, and violence. Seeking to free sexual love from its old communal restraints, we have freed it also from its meaning, its responsibility, and its exaltation. We are now living in a sexual atmosphere so polluted and embittered that women must look on virtually any man as a potential assailant, and a man must look on virtually every woman as a potential accuser. This was written in 1992. 
What we are actually teaching the young is an illusion of thoughtless freedom, which encourages them to tamper prematurely, disrespectfully, and dangerously with great power. And the cult of liberated sexuality, free of courtesy, ceremony, responsibility, and restraint, there is not sense or sanity. Trying to draw the line where we are trying to draw it between carelessness and brutality is like insisting that falling is flying until you hit the ground and then try to outlaw hitting the ground. End quote. Brothers and sisters, what Wendell Berry wrote in 1992 really came full grown 25 and 30 years later. He was not exaggerating. And so, so much of what we see in our culture around us with all the brokenness and the hurt, and I would love to to dissect this quote even further and talk about it at every point. We don't have time to do that this morning. That is not our purpose. But if we will back up to the foundation that God himself has given to us in his word, we will honor his word. It will lead not to brokenness and not to chaos, but it will lead even beyond sanity itself to flourishing and blessing to God's people. And brothers and sisters, as a church, we are to be an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And as we seek to submit to God's word, what we're saying is not, hey, you should live like us because these are arbitrary things that have been laid out. No, what we're saying is this is God's way of blessing and flourishing. And as we live and seek to submit to his word, our lives should give credibility to the glorious words that we proclaim with our mouths in the gospel as the culture around us sees the fruit of that gospel adorning our lives and adorning the very words that we proclaim. And so with these things in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word and let's look at his instruction to us, specifically within the context of marriage, as God, through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit and through the Apostle Paul, instructs wives and husbands here in his word. Ephesians 5.22, and we'll read through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the water, with, wa- with washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This concludes the reading of God's word, and may he bless not only the reading of it, but the preaching and the hearing of it this morning for his glory for his name's sake. Brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention here, you may already be tempted if you're in the room and you say, well, I'm not married, so I can just check out for the next three hours of this sermon. 
But I would tell you this morning that you'd be wrong if you were to do that. In Hebrews 13.4, I want you to notice something that God's Word says. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Not just married people, right? Not some people, but all people. That includes singles. That includes marrieds, newly marrieds, seasoned marrieds, right? That includes widow and widower. That includes those who seek and hope for marriage in their singleness. And that includes those who say, I'm actually called to singleness. All is comprehensive that marriage would be held in honor among all. And so I hope that you will heed God's word this morning and say and see by the end of the sermon, sermon that all of us have a stake in marriage. Each and every one of us in this room. And so I want you to pay close attention to God's word and how he is instructing us. And as we pull all this together at the end of this passage and the end of this sermon, I hope you will be convinced even further by God's word that when it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, that there is a good reason for this according to the word of the Lord. Now, as we begin our time together, the first thing that I want you to notice is that as we return to Ephesians, I know it's been a couple of weeks as we spent time away during Advent, but there's a theme that is going on here in Ephesians that we looked at the last time we were here. I think I actually preached that sermon in verse, uh, ending in verse 21. But there, there is this theme of submission. There's a theme of submission that's running through this section of Ephesians. Now, there is some PowerPoint. You can thank Tyler... You can think Austin. I think it's a whole collaborative effort, right? Uh, but this beginning things that I'm going to share with you, uh, there are some PowerPoint slides that I hope will be helpful to you. Uh, and then as we move into the heart of the sermon, there won't be that much PowerPoint. But what I'm seeking to do here is to lay a framework for you, right? I want you to see this because I think as we move through these next, uh, this section of, of Scripture, if we have some good framework, it will help us in our understanding of it. So first, we see this theme of submission. In Ephesians 5.21, where we ended just the verse prior to this, it calls us to submit to one another. It calls us to submit to one another. Uh, just prior to that, right, we've been called to instruct one another through singing, through psalms, through hymns, spiritual songs. And so there's this call to submit to one another. There's the call that we're looking at now in 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. There is the call in Ephesians 6.1, the very next section, children, obey, obey your parents in the Lord. And so this obey is submission, right? And then 6.5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. So we see this theme of submission throughout this section of Ephesians, not just in one or two areas, but in several different contexts where there is this call for submission. And so as we think on that, I think what it's helpful for us to do is to say, if there is submission that is called for, then by implication there is also authority. There is this call for authority. And so I'm going to seek to lay out a quick framework for you of authority, and I'm using unapologetically Jonathan Lehman's newer book from this past fall called Authority, and then there's a really long subtitle, but if you just type that in, you'll find it. And so let's look at a couple of different things. What is authority? What is authority? Well, authority is the authorization to do something. Now, this is so important. It's the authorization to do something. So it is an office. Now, why would I say that's important? Well, here's why. First, power is the ability to do something. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the authorization to use that power to do it. 
A lot of us have a lot of power. We could go out and do things that police officers do. But I don't think we have any law enforcement in the room. Maybe, maybe not. But if you're not a law enforcement officer, you don't have the authorization to do that. You may be able to walk into a, a, one of our local schools and teach. But if you don't hold that office right, of teacher in that school, you don't have the authorization to walk into that building and to begin to teach. This is important. Because if you'll look, people will actually try to erode what's going on here in Ephesians because they miss this distinction that there is an office. And so I've heard those who will seek to erode this, this role in marriage of wives submit to your husbands. And they'll say, if you look at the very verse before that, you'll see that we're all called to submit to one another, right? Well, you need to understand what Paul's talking about. He's talking about various offices here. So in verse 21, he's talking about that we submit to one another within the church, within the church, as we are members and we are covenanted together. And so what are we to do? We're to instruct one another in the Lord. And we're to call one another. We can look at other passages, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10. We're to encourage one another. We're to warn one another. And so we are called to instruct each other in Scripture. All right? Now he moves to a different office within marriage. And then he'll move to parenting. And that's a different office. And children submitting to their parents. And then he'll move even to the servant-master relationship. All right? So, and at the same time, it's an office that could be of command or counsel. Command or counsel. Now, what you'll see is that some offices have a mechanism for enforcing their authority. The government, Romans 13, bears the sword. So they have a mechanism to ensure that you heed their authority, right? Parents, Ephesians 6, have discipline. They're to discipline to seek. So they have an authority of command, the other authorities are authority of counsel. They're authority of counsel. They may not have a mechanism for enforcing. You'll see here in this passage before us that husbands are never told to ensure that their wives submit, ever. Right? Wives are called to submit, so they're not told to submit them. Right? Parents are called to ensure that their children obey and are trained in righteousness according to God's ways. All right, so that's important for us to see. So not all offices of authority have the exact same role. Some have a command, some have counsel. And then with that, Lehman does something that's very helpful, and he says, within authority we have transcendence and we have eminence. So transcendence, you look at, he's looking at God himself, right? God is transcendent. He's over and above us. He has the authority of command. He's the ultimate authority, right? But in redemption, in Christ Jesus, he comes down eminent, alongside of us, alongside of us. And so you see the same in authority. A general has a lot of transcendence, right? A general has a lot of transcendence. A husband who is called to come alongside his wife is an authority of counsel and eminence. He's alongside. It's way less of the transcendence and more eminence. Parents of young children Lots of transcendence. You do this. You do that. You don't do this. You don't run across the street. That kind of thing, right? And then there is the coming alongside as their children grow older and it's eminence, right? There's more eminence. I'm about to experience this in a very real way for the first time when I leave here. As I told my 15-year-old, you can drive me home. You can drive me home. I've never done that before. He's, this, is, this is a first for me. He's done it for mom. She's a lot more gracious and merciful than I am. And I haven't released this control. I'm going to come beside him. And I'm going to have less command 
more counsel because he's got the will, right? And there's less transcendence, more eminence. You see what we're talking about. So I think this framework will be helpful for you. Next, there's four purposes of authority. That's what Lehman says. Here we have, first, grow those under it. Grow those in it. We create groups and we teach what God is like. All right? We grow those under it. So authority is always meant for Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And he came for our flourishing and for our redemption and for our well-being. Right? And so authority grows those who are under it. You, as you exercise authority, you should be growing yourself in Christ-likeness and godliness. Parents, we'll, you'll hear parents say often, parenting is one of the most sanctifying things I've ever done, right? We should be growing in godliness as we exercise this authority, as we're seeking to grow the children under our care. It creates groups. So often authority will say, this is who we are, and this is what we're doing. This is our mission. You see this even in a church. And then next, and this is the most convicting thing, authority teaches what God is like. Good or bad, if you exercise authority poorly, then you're teaching others that God is a tyrant. Right? One of the most difficult things I read this week was a lady testifying, saying, I still have a hard time singing how deep the Father's love for us because of an abusive father that I had. Right? And so we're either we're teaching others, good or bad, the way we exercise authority, what God is like. Next, what is Submission. Submission. Submission is deferring by moral constraint to another person's judgment and deploying your resources for the sake of fulfilling that person's judgment. Moral constraint. Submission is a choice. We're not talking about physical constraint. Submission is a choice. The child can obey the mom or dad, right? It's time to come in. They can choose to obey or not to obey. And then they deploy. They put the bike in the garage and they come inside or they say, no, I'm going to rebel and I'm going to deploy my actions to, to do what I want to do. All right. Next, the limits of submission. Authority has limits, therefore submission has limits as well. You can even see in Ephesians 6, when we get there, fathers are called not to exasperate their children. God's word is putting a limit on the father's authority. You should not exasperate Right? And so there are, there are limits on authority. The only ultimate authority is God. Therefore, all authority is derivative. All authority is, it comes from Him, and therefore it has limits on it. So, when it, should authority be limited? Well, when it requires one to sin. Right? We should always disobey. You think about Peter and John in Acts 4. They said, nope, we will not obey you. Right? When you tell us not to speak of the Lord, and that's exactly his explicit command to us, was to go and to make disciples and to proclaim his name. And so they refused to obey that. When authority drives outside, it's God-assigned lanes. I don't need to step outside and start directing traffic. If I do that, not only am I putting my life in danger, but other people's, I don't have the authority to do that. And then when protecting oneself from wrongful harm. So when authority is abusive. Right? It's sinful, it's abusive, and it's causing harm to others. So these are some, some framework for us that I think that can help us as we think on authority, as we think through this section of Scripture in Ephesians 5, 21 through 
uh, really six, right, nine. So as we think through this section, this framework of authority, I think it will help you. If, if you can write this down, I can send you this outline, and uh, you can use it. Uh, we're talking about a 350-page book. I would encourage you to read it, but I would encourage you, even if you don't want to read it, talk through some of these things with some of your other um, fellow church members and base group in this framework as we seek to apply it, because I believe it's a biblical framework that will help us uh, understand God's Word and apply it uh, in more detail. All right, now let's look at Ephesians 22. First, in verses 22 through 24, uh, wives are instructed. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And so you'll notice the same theme as you look. Look at how each section starts with the instruction to submit. So in 521, submit out of reverence for Christ. 522, submit as unto the Lord. 6-1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? And then 6-5, servants, obey your masters as you would Christ. And so over and over, you see this ultimate call to submission is rooted in a call to submit to the ultimate authority who is God himself. And so this call over and over is clear there in Scripture. And so the next thing that we've already pointed out that I want you to see is that here in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1, the exact same emphasis, submit to your own husband. So, and then as to the Lord, your husband, wives, is he worthy of your submission? No, he's not. Wrong question. Is Christ worthy of your submission? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And so the call is to submit to your, to your husbands as unto the Lord. And, and within that call, I think there are several unique temptations that wives will face and encounter. The first one may be competition, right, to compete with that leadership role. And so what I want you to see here for the husband as the head of the wife, there is this distinction are men and women equal in value and worth and dignity? Absolutely. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is absolutely clear about that. But there are distinctions within the marriage relationship, right? There are roles for the husband as the head of the wife. So there is this distinction that he is to lead, right? Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything um, to their husbands. And so we see this call. And so there is this, this temptation, just as we saw there in the fall, uh, as God hands down those curses and he says that she, that Eve would desire to rule over her husband. So there may be these times where, where a wife would be tempted to compete for this leadership role. There may be uh, the unique temptation to manipulate as well, to seek to manipulate and to lead from, um, from under his headship and to seek to lead that way. And so Let's think about a couple of things uh, where wives are instructed, specifically in Scripture, with some things that may be helpful uh, in light of this passage. One, I think women should, wives should pursue, just as all Christians should, godliness. So you think about 1 Peter 3, 4, adorning the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And so here we see that wives are called to pursue this godliness. And as they seek to pursue godliness, we can look in, in, um, <clears throat> in Proverbs and we can see over and over, if we think about these temptations of what could be called competition or manipulation, 
there is speaking of a quarrelsome wife is spoken of multiple times in chapter 14, chapter 19, chapter 21, I think again in chapter 25. And so there is this warning about that for, for a wife, to not be quarrelsome, to not be competitive, to not seek to manipulate the husband uh, in his leadership. <clears throat> and then you get to Proverbs 31, and look how God's word lays it out. The excellent wife who can find. Honestly, the passage is making clear that it is difficult, that this is a pursuit that only comes through God's grace. Look at what it says. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And so look at this call in God's word that an excellent wife is rare. It's hard to find. She's more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have lack of no gain, and she does him good. And if you read the rest of that section, you'll notice uh, that this is a uniquely amazing woman, right, by God's grace, who works and who serves in many, many ways. And so wives, I would call you, Pursue godliness, pursue holiness, pursue growth and grace as you seek to live within the role that God has called you to in marriage. But if you look at the section on husbands, there is a great, great call for the husband, right? Over and over, we were, when Brandon and I were, were newly married and in the first church that I pastored, we had some good friends in that church, and uh, they lived in our neighborhood. And so they would jokingly say, we would eat dinner with them fairly often, and uh, he, he would jokingly say to his wife, submit, submit. And she would say, die, 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 right? Because that's what we're called to here in this passage. Husbands, to sacrificially love your wife. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's the call. There is this distinction for the husband to lead, but there is this incredible call. So let me look at, let me, I think I have one more slide that'll show you the call. There it is to husbands. Sacrificial love, and by implication, 529, when he talks about loving yourself to nourish and cherish. 319 of Colossians, don't be harsh. 1 Peter 3, 7, live with in an understanding way. And 1 Timothy 5, 8, provide. Brothers and sisters, what we see uh, in this passage and in these passages, husbands are, as we've already pointed out, are never called to have their wives submit to them. That's never their call. Their call is to lovingly, sacrificially lead. It's to lovingly, sacrificially lead in the marriage and in the home. They're never called to, to have their wives submit. They're to sacrifice. They're to nourish. They're to cherish. They're to not be harsh. They're to live with an understanding way. They're to provide for their families. If you'll even look uh, throughout Scripture, you'll see that there are stronger calls for the elders of the church to exercise authority. But even within that authority, you'll see in 1 Peter 5, but not lording it over the church. And so over and over and over in Scripture, we see these godly calls to authority are to serve others and to, to be loving toward others and to, to lead them, right, so that they will flourish under the leadership. Think of 2 Samuel 23. 
And so they'll flourish under that leadership. I think the unique temptations for husbands within this call to lead are abdication and absence or domineering harshness. And often they feed one another. Because the husband is tempted to, be at, to abdicate his role to lead, to be absent even though he may be present in the home, and to be absent and aloof, but then, right, the threshold is hit and the response is harshness and domineering. I said stop doing that, right? And this is how it can begin to come out. And so the call is for a husband to lovingly lead the wife, to love her with Christ's sacrificial love, verse 25. Husbands, spend yourself for your wife. You are given this authority, but what this authority is an incredible weight that you and I will be held accountable for and will answer to God for. And it's not a platform from us to lead from. It's actually a platform that we are to then make ourselves a platform to elevate our wives, our children, and those around us, and to serve for their good. Verses 26 through 27, you should seek her spiritual welfare. There in the garden, God gave the command to Adam to work and to keep, and for the wife to be a helper in that. And so you can think of that language of work. Work means cultivate. To cultivate, keep means protect. He was to keep and protect the garden, which he failed to do when the serpent entered in. And so if you, if you take this same motif that runs all throughout Scripture, you and I, husbands, are called to work and to keep, to cultivate and to protect. Do you seek this, uh, the spiritual well-being of your wife? Do you read and talk about Scripture together and seek to apply it to your lives together? Do you pray with her? This is an area, as I was thinking on this sermon, where, where I need growth of praying with my wife more. Do you attend church with her? Do you seek growth and grace together as a couple? Not only are you to seek her spiritual welfare, you're to seek her physical welfare. This works out in the love your neighbor as yourself that we see in verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, right? To, to cherish, to nourish that. So do you seek her physical well-being? Does she flourish in her endeavors because of your leadership, husbands? Do you work and keep? You may need to protect her. You may need to protect her from doing too much, right? You may need to encourage her to do things that she might not otherwise pursue because you see the potential that she has in certain areas and giftedness that God has given her. And let me give you one more that I think is very important. Husbands, hear from your wife often. Hear from her often. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since you are heirs, since she is heirs with you of the grace of this life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. First, notice what Peter says. He says, live together. Spend as much time as possible with your wife. Live in rhythm with her. 
Brothers, we must recognize that in God's word, nowhere else are we called to do the things that we are called to do here. Sacrificial love, nourish and cherish, do not be harsh, live in an understanding way and provide. You're not called to do that for your job. You're not called to do that for your hobbies. You're not called to do that for anything else. But you're called to do that for your bride. And so you and I, in 1 Peter, we're instructed to live with her in an understanding way, to live in rhythm with her. You cannot live in rhythm with her if you do not know her. You cannot live in rhythm with her if you do not invite her. What are your hopes? What are some aspirations you have? What are some fears that you have? What are some concerns that you have? If we're not having those conversations with our brides, how are we going to live with her in an understanding way? Some of your, some, for some of you, your bride is waiting on you to ask something like that. Pay attention. Know your wife and know what is going on in her life. Notice what Peter says. So that your prayers may not be hindered. What this passage shows us is that the way that you lead and relate to your wife can have a negative consequence on your relationship with the Lord. That God takes seriously when we don't exercise the authority that he gives us in a way that represents him well, it will hinder our relationship with him. I think it would be a great thing if you would go back and read the book of Ruth again that we talked about during Advent. Look at Boaz. He is a great example of what we're talking about here. Boaz is a noble man, a worthy man. He's a leader. But notice what he does. Is he in charge? Absolutely. He walks into that field and his servants greet him, right? And recognize him as a noble man of character and honor. He gives instructions. He gives commands. He says, do this, do that. Watch out for her. Don't shame her, right? He takes initiative. He says, I will see that this is taken care of tomorrow morning, Ruth. Right? Boaz is a man who leads, who takes initiative. Boaz is a man of command. But everything that Boaz is doing is focused on others. It's all focused on others. It's focused on the well-being of Ruth and on the well-being of Naomi. It's focused on taking up their charge and taking up and championing what they need for their flourishing and for their goodness. And notice that even at the end of all that, when Boaz takes the initiative, when he spins himself throughout that whole book, at the end, who really reaps the blessing of that? There's Naomi with that baby in her lap. And the book ends with a focus on her. He's an excellent example of what we're looking at here in this passage. That, men, we are called to lead in our homes and in our families. And that does mean authority. And it does mean leadership and exercising that authority. But it means doing it for the sake of others and spending even ourselves for the sake of others. Now, notice where this passage goes. As we move forward, this call for husbands to love sacrificially, this call to care for them spiritually, to care for them physically, and then notice what Paul says. Verse 30, because we are all members of his body, right? Because Christ does this. He nourishes and cares for the church. Therefore, 
And this is just as a side notice right here in the passage. Paul, what does he do? He quotes from, uh, from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Go and read Matthew 19 when Jesus talks about divorce. Go and read uh, here in Ephesians. Go and read <clears throat> over in even 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul talks about sexual immorality. He alludes to these passages. Everything is rooted in God's creational design. It's important for you that you'll see that God's creational design in Genesis 2 is what's driving forward the biblical uh, marriage and sexual ethic all the way throughout Scripture. It's always rooted back to there. And then look at what he says next, that this marriage that God established all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 with the first man and with the first woman, that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife, that that, that, that relationship takes precedence over all other relationships, even mother and father, right? That they would leave and they would become one and cleave and they would be one flesh, that so that would be nourished here as Paul has been instructing us. And there's a reason for that. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. He's been instructing us on the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. And everything that he has said, as you've noticed if you read through this, has been saturated with gospel language. And then in verse 32, he says, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Don't miss it. Paul is saying that marriage between a husband and a wife refers or points to the greater reality of Christ in the church. See, we tend to think of it this way. We tend to think about it that marriage is this great reality, and it's kind of like Christ in the church, the lesser reality. But that would be an incorrect understanding of the passage because what Paul is saying is that your very real marriage, and even if you aren't married, the very real marriages that you witness between your mom and dad, whether broken or good or whole or flourishing or whether um, just under the, the languishing, all of that, 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 that a marriage that you and I can see, that it is to point to this greater reality of Christ in the church. That your marriage is real, well, even more so is the union between Christ and his church real. Marriage is a sign pointing to the greater sign to come. If you've been around me for long, you've heard me use the illustration, but tell some kids here today that you'll take them to Disney World, and as you drive and you get in the South Georgia on 75 and you see the first billboard to Disney World, stop there and say, all right, kids, we're here. They will absolutely riot, right? They will set the tires on that car on fire. They're like, no, this is not Disney World. Why? Because it's a sign that points to Disney World. It's a sign that points to the greater reality of where we are headed and where we are to come. And so your marriage, my marriage, is a sign that points to a greater marriage that is to become, that is to come. The marriage between the husband and the wife is pointing to the reality of Christ and the church. Think about it in the light of shadow and substance. That your marriage and the marriages around you, although very real, they are but a shadow of the true substance of Christ and the church. Now think about that for a moment. This is why marriage is to be held in honor by all. By all. Carl Truman in a lecture years ago, I've never seen where he's written this, but I heard him say it in a lecture. 
that every earthly marriage begins with celebration and ends in tragedy, death, or divorce. Yet the marriage between Christ and the church began in tragedy at the cross and moves to endless joy and celebration. Everybody can get in on that marriage. Married, single, longing for marriage, broken marriage, separated by death, right? Everyone has the ability to get in on that marriage. Therefore, marriage should be held in honor by all. Because marriage is a sign that points to this greater reality that is to come between Christ and his church, a reality which we are already in through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we are moving toward Revelation 21, 3 through 5. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now that's a beautiful marriage. That's a marriage that all other marriages have pointed to. That is the marriage that we will know in full reality. And so we can see in light of that that all marriage, all should honor marriage because all have the ability to be a part of the greater marriage to come by faith and repentance. Because the ultimate marriage is something that we are welcomed into by the gospel. Married, single, divorced, widowed, all are welcomed into that marriage between Christ and the church simply through faith and repentance. Husbands and wives, do you see how much more your marriages matter? That your marriage is a sign of God's glory. It's a sign pointing to the greater reality of Christ and the church. And maybe you're here today and you thought, and you're thinking, you know, I wish someone... In my life would exercise authority the way that we've talked about. I wish someone in my life would have loved me sacrificially, would have put me first, and would have sought my well-being. I wish someone would be like a Boaz for me, who would spend themselves and use their authority for my good and for my flourishing. Well, can I tell you, there is one who has done that for you, and his name is Jesus. He's the transcendent. Holy God, the second person of the Trinity who stepped out of heaven and became very eminent with you and I and condescended and became a man to serve. And he had complete authority in everything that he did. He commanded throughout his life and ministry, but all of his command was for you and for I. And he even laid down his life in his own authority. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down and I take it back up again. And he exercised his authority so that he could give you and I eternal, everlasting life. So that he could take us up, and from heaven he came and sought us, as we just sang a few moments ago, so that we could be his bride. He lived the life that you and I could not, would not live, but laid down his life, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself and exhausting the wrath of God so that there is none left for you, there is none left for me, so that any who would look to him in faith and repentance and throw themselves on his feet of his mercy and his grace could be saved and could be raised to everlasting life. 
brothers and sisters, friends, there is one who has served us with such lavish grace and mercy. And his name is Christ. This morning, if you've never looked to him in faith and repentance, that's the greatest thing. That is the call that is on you. That he looks to you and he says, come unto me and be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is so important that we keep this before us and that we understand God's plan and his design and the signs that he has given to us that point to the gospel reality of Christ Jesus. Because we live in a world that seeks to seduce us with all false signs. Signs that are pointing us the wrong way. See, this is exactly why it is illegal to deface a sign because it is a matter of life and death. When I was in college, there was a road nearby that was called True Love Road. And when we got there, one of the college administrators told us as we were talking one night in a, uh, just in a casual environment, the, the conversation came up and he said teenagers would steal the sign because what high schooler wouldn't want a sign in their room that said True Love, right? But he said one night after it had recently been stolen, someone who lived on True Love Road had a medical emergency and the ambulance missed the road because there was no sign. And it was feared that the person died because there was a delay in help getting there. You see, defacing or repurposing signs is a matter of life and death. If this is true for road signs, how much more is it true for the gospel sign that points to Christ in the church? We don't get to repurpose marriage. We don't get to redefine it. We don't get to rework it. We don't know better than God. It is his sign that points to Christ in the church. And brothers and sisters, we should cherish that sign. We should submit ourselves to God's word, husbands and wives both, and then even singles and widows and others who are in the church and say, we prize God's sign of Christ in the church. And we long for, pray for, strive for, work for together as a church, healthy marriages. Because the reality is everything that we've heard this morning has been at such a high level and so quick that you and I, wives and husbands both, we need the help of others around us who know us well to help us process this and say, where do I need to grow in grace as a husband? Where do I need to grow in grace as a wife? Where do I need to grow in grace as one who longs for marriage and who is preparing for marriage? We need the help of each other as we seek to point one another to Christ and to God's word. And may the Lord raise up marriages in our church by the power of the gospel that do exactly what we said at the beginning, that lend credibility to the words that we proclaim that adorn the words that we proclaim, that a world who is languishing in sexual chaos and in brokenness, that they would say, we want that. That is the good life. Why is it? Because it's straight from the creator who designed life of blessing and flourishing. And may that be so in our lives for God's glory because marriage is for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In a culture that wants to make all things about us and for us. It is so clear that it is all for you and for your glory. But when that happens, it truly is for our good. 
And so this morning we pray more and more that we would grow, that we would cherish as a church your sign that points to the gospel. Your sign that points to Christ in the church and to the bliss that will come from our Savior who came from heaven and sought us. Father, we pray that we will grow as husbands and wives in grace more and more to image you rightly to those around us, to the watching world, to our children, to those in the church, and that we would be a good sign, a sign that is not faded, that is not so tattered that you can't read it, but is a sign that that points by your grace to Christ in the church. Father, we pray that we would all humble ourselves under your authority and confess together that we don't know better than you and that we would submit ourselves to your word as your people and for your glory. And Lord, we pray for any who are here, many in here and some in here have experienced, we've all experienced bad authority and leadership. Some of us have experienced horrific authority and leadership. Father, may we all look to the king who came not to serve himself, but to serve us. The king who came and laid down his life for us. The king who has all authority. That is a king worthy of us following. And may we submit to him. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.